0: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty,
1: Mark Claire. Welcome back into the Lions Den. <laughs> also known as My Little House, just outside of Marino del Rora. if you're familiar with the Californian skit on Saturday Night Live. And you know, there are a lot of new people in the libertarian movement now. A lot of people new to the ideas of liberty. And we have a few things to thank for this. One of those is a guy named Ron Paul, who ran for president in 2008 and 2012, and really put a lot of issues out there in the limelight that most politicians refuse to talk about at all. Things like the war on drugs foreign policy, the concept of blowback, the crazy idea that if you drop bombs on people, some of those people and their families might get a little upset about it and cause some anger towards the people doing those bombings. Nutty stuff. Nutty stuff, I know. But you know, and whether you agree with him on everything or not, which I don't always... There's no doubt that Ron Paul was very influential in getting a lot of people talking about this stuff and talking about ideas in a new way, changing the conversation. We also have technology to thank. 20 years ago, podcasts didn't exist. The internet was not something that was widely used. We have social media now. We have ways to communicate with each other instantly. And all this stuff, it's kind of a perfect storm. has come together at the same time, bringing a lot of new people into this conversation, which is what we're all about here at Lions of Liberty, at our site, linesofliberty.com. Be sure to check us out if you're not already checking us out. And because there are so many people new to the movement, there are many people who are likely unfamiliar with the modern history of the libertarian movement in the United States. It didn't just start with Ron Paul. I know it seems like it did. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. My guest here is actually an expert on the history of the modern libertarian movement in America. He is a senior editor for Reason Magazine and Reason.com. He is also the author of several books chronicling the modern history of the libertarian movement in the United States, Radicals for Capitalism, a history of the modern American libertarian movement, and his latest, Ron Paul's Revolution, The Man and the Movement He Inspired. Brian Doherty, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast.
2: Thank you for
1: having me. I'm excited to have you on here today, Brian. I've been a big fan of your writing over at Reason as well as your books. And first off, I'm curious, how did you first get interested in you know libertarian ideas? Was there a certain moment, uh, an article you read, a speech you heard, anything like that that kind of started you down this path?
2: Sure. I'm in my mid forties, so I was a teenager in the early eighties when I started getting into this stuff, the pre internet age. So everything happened through either books, you know, often obscure and hard to get books, and uh, conversations with friends and the particular uh, book I read, which is actually a novel of still of some prominence within certain libertarian circles uh, called Illuminatus or often called the Illuminatus Trilogy because it was originally published in three volumes in the 70s. and It was written by a pair of what might in the contemporary context be called left libertarians, sort of really imbued me with the notion that authority, uh, particularly violent authority, the idea that certain people should have the power or the right to force other people to do things with threats and violence, it felt like a bad thing. And it sort of gave me some hints of the larger intellectual tradition supporting that belief. Uh, most specifically, there is a sort of made-up religion discussed in the book called Discordianism, which I didn't realize it at the time was actually... A real made-up religion in the sense that it actually existed in the world prior to this novel being written. And in fact, the the people who wrote the novel, Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea, were sort of comedic followers of this religion. It was invented by a pair of guys uh, named Gregory Hill and Carrie Thornley. Thornley, though I didn't know this at the time, was one of the early founders of libertarian zines in the 1960s, particularly with a zine called The Innovator. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I didn't know any of that at the time. I only knew I had read this cool novel and that it referred to this, I thought, fake religion called Discordianism. And then I saw an ad in the back of a science fiction magazine. I was a big science fiction reading kid. Uh, I think it was Amazing Stories. An ad for what appeared to be the Bible of this fake religion, Discordianism. And I mail-ordered it along with it came a catalog from the uh, bookseller who was selling these things and I know that I, I sound like a hundred year old man talking about this but it's worth thinking because it's a fact of reality that shifted and if you are under 30 uh, sort of gratitude you should feel toward the existence of the internet you know should really grow when you contemplate the way ideas had to spread back in the early 80s at any rate this company that sold a book called Lumpanix also was run by a libertarian fellow named Mike Hoy and sold a bunch of other libertarian related books and one of them, which I ordered, my first mail order from this company, was Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. That title, you know, I was probably 14 at the time, that title sounded very promising to a 14-year-old. Wow, I can understand a complicated just complicated one lesson. One right? lesson. That's great. <laughs> I would never say that that book is all anyone needs to understand about economics. I would say that the whole world would be a better place if everyone had at least that book under their belt. The most important lesson it teaches is that you always need to look not just at the Obvious first-hand effects of any action in the economy, but you need to think of the second-hand effects, the third-hand effects. The libertarian message of it is it it sort of helps you see through government's promise that oh we're doing this great thing and it's only great and don't think about the resources that we're taking from some people to move into another place or the bad incentive effects we might be creating uh, with the things we do. And that book led me to understand that there was a body of intellectual thought behind this. And I kept buying more books. And then I went to college and I met some people running a table for University of Florida for the University of Florida College Libertarians. And they had more of these books. And again, you needed copies of the books. You couldn't just go online and read them. You needed to find people who had the books or you needed to find some weird, obscure dealer who would sell you them. And And then I just, you know, went down the rabbit hole, and I'm reading my Rothbard, I'm reading my Hayek, and I'm reading my Mises, and I've been pretty much locked in, isn't the word. I was fortunate enough to sort of be exposed to a way of thinking about and looking at the world that has continued to make sense to me and sort of continued to make richer sense to me as time went on. So that's how I got into it. Books, the wrong books or the right books, depending on how you look at it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the internet there and how, you know, people under 30 might not really appreciate what it was like pre-internet. I'm just slightly over 30, so I kind of started getting interested in this stuff right around when the internet was picking up. It's only in probably the last six, seven years the internet has become a true form of constant communication with social media and all that kind of thing. And I think... I don't know how you guys even did it before there was any internet because, I mean, when I first started getting into this stuff, I kind of thought libertarians were just like me, Murray Rothbard and Ron Paul. And I don't know if there's anyone else out there. So it's really amazing that we have this way where we can actually find out, hey, there are other people out there and we can communicate these ideas to even more people. So it's truly fantastic. Now, when did you take that interest and start to focus that into your journalistic career? Was that when you started in college there, and and did you know you wanted to be a journalist from the beginning? Did you know you wanted to be a journalist and focus on kind of libertarian issues, or how did that develop?
2: I did know I wanted to be a writer, like probably since I was a super bookish kid, and probably since I was 9 or 10, it was clear to me that that was where my skill set and passion lay. I wasn't self-consciously super political until college. So I didn't necessarily march ahead with the idea that I wanted to be any kind of professional libertarian advocate or journalist. But uh, during my second year of college, I went to Institute for Humane Studies seminar. They still do these same kind of seminars today. And one of these things where they bring like 100 kids and there's like six lecturers, and you're there all week and you're, you know, all day long listening to lectures about anarchism and legal philosophy and economics. And then you're up all night talking about these ideas with with other excited kids, and I, I sort of came out of that pretty sure that as an identity and as a body of thought that this stuff was really important to me, and I began, you know, subscribing to Reason and Liberty magazine and these sort of pre-internet ways to stay in touch. So I was aware of the existence of the Cato Institute, and then you know I graduated college in early 1991. I had done the journalism thing in college. I had been opinions editor of my school paper and entertainment editor and sort of did your basic kind of college libertarian-y op-ed column, which was fun, and it was good at making people mad, and that seemed a really fun thing to do when you were 20 or 21. It's, I'm less thrilled when I, I make people mad these days. It's a little more wearying, but it was very exciting then to know that you were making people mad with with what you thought and said. And so, you know, came out of college, didn't have a job lined up, and... Just got a summer internship at Cato again. Something that's still going on and available today. And I ended up in Cato's PR department. And I had the good luck, in retrospect, of having the woman who was running the PR department at the time quit uh, Cato in the middle of my summer there. And she went on to found this really great group that's still around today called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which fights against mandatory minimum sentencing. Her name was uh, Julie Stewart then, and. I was sort of running the entire PR department, despite just being an intern. And when they hired a new PR director, she was happy that I was there and decided to ask Kato, hey, why don't we just keep this guy on? So suddenly I had a job. And again, uh, I didn't know that I wanted to be a professional libertarian, but that ended up being the first job I lucked into, and uh, it wasn't a writing job, so I sort of started doing freelance writing for libertarian publications, including Reason, and then by the mid-90s, Reason was advertising for an assistant editor, and they knew me from freelancing, and I applied, and I got the job, and I've been at Reason pretty much ever since. I, I-, I took a bunch of breaks to uh, write books and to do a fellowship at CEI, but I've more or less been there most of my professional life.
1: Well, let's talk about your books for a minute. What, what exactly prompted you to decide that it was an important thing to do, to chronicle the history of the modern libertarian movement as you do in your book Radicals for Capitalism? And guys, if anybody out there has not read this book and is at all interested in the history of modern libertarianism, it, this is an absolutely essential read. I mean, it, you really if there's anything you want to know, you'll know it by the time you read this book. So what prompted you to write that?
2: I had gotten into this world, and it seemed really exciting and important to me, and specifically while I was an intern at Cato, I was sort of sitting around BSing late one night, probably over beers with some other young intern at Cato, and a guy named Chris Witten was sort of asking a lot of questions about libertarian history, and I knew a little bit about it then just because it was a passion, and I seemed to know more about it than anyone else in the room, and, and Witten was like, wow, someone should write a book about this, and you you seem to know a bit about it, maybe you should. I looked around at how much, and this is still true to this day, if you go to a library, a well-stocked library, and look at the section about communism, like even the American Communist Party, you know, not the Soviet one, which actually did do, you know, obviously, stuff of great historical importance, so whether you like it or hate it, I felt that the libertarian tradition was a more genuinely American tradition, and a very important tradition, and deserved to have someone write its history, and it took me about 11 years to do it, obviously not full-time, there was maybe a year of it where it was my full-time thing, but uh, worked on it slowly over 11 years, hope I did a good job, people tell me I did, I-, I also wanted to rescue it, this this is important, it's the reason why the word radicals is in the title, The extent that libertarianism and the libertarian movement was discussed in American history and American political history, it was usually treated as a sort of weird, little, ugly stepbrother of the right, of the conservative movement, and that's intellectually wrong, and it's historically wrong, and I wanted to rescue libertarianism from being sort of treated as this weird little offshoot of the right wing. I finished writing that book in, like, 2005 for the most part, and it came out in 2007, history since then, is libertarian history particularly, has moved very, very fast. It's not as natural as it might have been 20 years ago for people to make that mistake, for people to think, oh, libertarianism, are you some weird little branch of the right? I feel like the, the newer generation of libertarian activists are, have done a pretty good job of cutting those ties and
1: Do you think that still remains to an extent today? Because I know I have a lot of friends who still kind of associate libertarianism with the right wing because they see that all these libertarian guys are who they associate with right wing Republicans. You got Rand Paul, Justin Amash, guys like that who we might know are very different from regular Republicans, but other people might associate that with with libertarianism and with Republicans. Do you see that at all?
2: Yeah, I don't want to say I don't see it at all. Uh, Obviously, it's still there. I will say I think it's a lot less of a problem than it was certainly in the 80s when I was getting into this stuff and and even in the aughts when I was writing this book. It's been startlingly encouraging to me the extent to which libertarianism has become normalized as an understood part of the political landscape. And one of the best ways to see that is in how often it is attacked nowadays especially by people on the progressive left. And it's something I actually sort of predicted in an essay I wrote in 2001. I think that the progressive left sees libertarianism as an enemy, as a stronger and worse in many ways enemy than the traditional conservative right the most self-congratulatory way of putting it would be to say that libertarians sort of take what should be the best aspects of the left belief in economy, uh, freedom, toppling power structures, real government power structures, and actually take them seriously and it sort of shows... The progressive left for the occasional or often impotent hypocrites that they are and I think that awareness has really sunk in with the progressive left in America today and they clearly see libertarianism as as far worse an enemy to them than the right wing ever has been and I think in doing so they've helped lots of people though by no means all people understand the distinction. Back then it would have been the case that probably 80 percent of say an average college student would literally have no idea what you mean if you said the term libertarian Nowadays, at least they know what you mean. Maybe they mistakenly conflate it with the right, but the very fact that they actually understand it as a thing on the political and ideological landscape has been super encouraging.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the landscape is changing when you see it constantly attacked. I mean, there's not a week that goes by when I don't see some article on Salon or the Huffington Post you know, decrying the evils of libertarianism and all that. And just that fact alone shows that it's it's getting out there because I don't remember seeing the word even mentioned 10 years ago.
2: Right, no, exactly.
1: Do you think this is an unprecedented time for the libertarian movement in America? Or have you seen high tides like this before? Has there been like an ebb and a flow in the interest of the ideas? Or are we at kind of like an all-time peak right now?
2: I think we are at an all-time peak, but but it hasn't been you know a continuous slow rise. One of the last ebbs was actually 1979, 1980, 1981, uh, an era that I write about in my book. It was the era when the Libertarian Party, which was a much bigger part of the Libertarian movement as a whole than it is now, had what was then its largest vote total and its largest percentage. It was That record was only beaten the other year by Ed Clark. You had Milton Friedman's Free to Choose topping the bestseller list and a very big deal on PBS. Again, this is in a media environment when being a bestselling book and being on a big network was a much bigger thing than it would be today. That kind of stuff can easily fall through the cracks. You had books by super radical libertarians like Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw about life extension topping the bestseller list. There was this largely forgotten, but very big at the time movement of these gold bug investment writers who were foreseeing, you know, government fiscal and monetary policy leading to an economic collapse. And you had lots of these guys topping the bestseller list with books about, you know, how you can survive the economic crisis, books by people like Harry Brown, who later ran for president with the LP, Douglas Casey, Robert Ringer, like there there was a handful of of super radical libertarian guys who were dominating what then was the sort of best-selling business book world. And again, a lot of this sounds pretty small in modern terms, but it was a sort of high tide at the time, then there was a receding for a couple of decades. And certainly in terms of the number of people who understand these ideas, support these ideas, push these ideas, to the extent that a politician like Rand Paul, who sort of comes out of this tradition. And we could argue back and forth about how pure an exponent of it he is, but certainly he is the most prominent, successful politician who comes out of this world that we've ever seen. And people not of this world are seriously discussing him as a presidential frontrunner. And I'm encouraged by that, you know, and you could point out a million things that Rand Paul did or said are not purist libertarian, and I will nod my head and agree with you, but I will still be encouraged in libertarian terms that he has gotten where he's gotten.
1: One point in libertarian history I just want to touch upon real quick, and I've always found really interesting. Can you discuss a little bit the split that occurred at Cato with Ed Crane, Murray Rothbard, how they split off? You still kind of see that little bit of dissension to this day. You know, they toss around Lou Rockwell. You see this term Stato tossed around a lot. How did that split occur? And I mean, why does it remain to this day? Is it purely a philosophical thing, or is there just some personal stuff that still happens to boil over? How did that all go down?
2: It's a combination of both. I'll preface this with saying that, in my experience, and I think this is a very good thing, these divisions are becoming very much just a matter of history now. Like, I don't see that many people under 30 who care that much. Uh, That said, it does center around the personality of Murray Rothbard, who was a central figure in nearly every libertarian institution of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, a guy who really went out of his way to create what he called a complete science of liberty, which included writing treaties on economics, treaties on political philosophy, treaties on sort of ethical theory as it applies to liberty. He wanted to be a sort of one-stop shop of libertarian thinking, and all of his contributions along those lines I think are still well worth reading, and luckily are pretty much available. He was an anarchist libertarian. He did not believe there was any necessary role for the state and political activism terms. He was a bit of a student of of Lenin, uh, believe it or not, which sounds curious. Uh, He was not a Leninist in the sense of uh, being a communist, but he was a Leninist in the sense of he looked at the world and was like, hey, what examples do we have? of a radical political philosophy rising from something only believed by a small cadre of intellectual weirdos to something that actually achieved political success, and for better or worse, Lenin and communism were one of them. Of course, being a libertarian, he did not apply the sort of armed revolution aspect of Leninism, but one aspect that he did believe in was the notion that what he called the cadre, the sort of center of the movement, the intellectual leaders of it, should be as hardcore, purist anarchist as possible. And after helping found Cato in the late 70s, along with Ed Crane as sort of the managerial brains and Charles Koch as the money, Rothbard decided that the Cato people, and a lot of this arose out of the Ed Clark for President Libertarian Party campaign. Again, in those days, the Libertarian Party was a much bigger deal in the movement than it was today, and Ed Crane was involved in that campaign, and David Koch was the vice presidential candidate in that campaign. And Rothbard sort of felt that the Koch and Crane people uh, were sort of soft peddling the libertarian hardcore. You know, Ed Clark would occasionally refer to what he stood for as low tax liberalism. Rothbard thought this was terrible. He thought it was terrible that the Cato Institute was not purely promoting Austrian style economics, that they would give support and hire people from the Milton Friedman Chicagoite School of Free Market Economics. So Rothbard got mad about all this and being the kind of personality he was, he he had this little sort of fanzine type publication called Libertarian Review and he would write long scabrous essays attacking his bosses and his financiers and uh, after a couple of years his boss, Ed Crane, and his financiers Charles Koch, got a little bit tired of this, and he ended up being fired and stripped of his ownership in Cato, and he went and allied himself with the Ludwig von Mises Institute, which was just launching in 1982, and that created that sort of division you mentioned, where the Ludwig von Mises Institute people saw themselves as, we're the purest, hardcore defenders of the Austrian faith, defenders of the anarchist faith, and these libertarian think tanks based in Washington are just you know, selling out and not pushing the hardcore vision. And as I said, I think I'm finding that if you were not personally acquainted with Murray Rothbard or Ed Crane, who was running Cato, or Lou Rockwell, who was running the Mises Institute, that these kind of things mean less and less to you and that you recognize that, hey, if anyone is pushing this message to whatever audience they're trying to push it to and whatever form they want to push it, that's a good thing. And and if you decide that maybe Cato isn't a good thing, because it's not hardcore enough for you, that it's not really the best use of your time, you know, poking at the Cato Institute, just let them do uh, whatever the heck they're doing. But that's where it all came from. I mean, I'm giving a very broad brush vision of it. But a lot of it is personal, based on Rothbard's individual conflicts with people. And a lot of it is is ideological, the sort of vision of, hey, can you engage with the corridors of power and really communicate with them and talk to them, the Cato vision? Or are you outside the corridors of power to sort of throwing rocks at them, which is, I would say, a better characteristic of the von Mises Institute attitude. I have always believed that, you know, in a division of intellectual labor about these things, I mean, there's 5 billion different minds on earth. And if your mission is to try to get them thinking in libertarian terms, there's never going to be one approach that's going to appeal to everyone. So I've always applauded. Anyone who decides, okay, I have a, a way of putting these ideas and I have a particular audience I'm going for and a particular style I like, more power to all of them because I certainly am not smart enough to centrally plan a, you know, an ideological change movement. So I've never thought it a particularly good use of libertarian time attacking other libertarians. That said, it's fun, right? I mean, we know it's fun. You, you, you get into this stuff like you care about it. And it's a very human thing to just you know, get mad and, and you get more mad at the people who are closest to you, right? Whether whether personal or ideological. Like there's no point in getting pissed at a commie for being a commie, but you know, I can see people getting pissed at something that sort of has the libertarian label around it, does something you think isn't right. I, I understand why people get mad about it. But it's more fun and, and more just something to idle time away with than something that I think is actually useful in changing the world.
1: Yeah, I almost see it like watching sports or MMA or pro wrestling or something. I mean, at the end of the day, I pretty much like everyone involved, but it's still fun to kind of see the battle and, and root someone on and that kind of thing and feel like you're a part of the whole thing. Exactly. I, I want to touch on your work at Reason a little bit. One thing I think Reason Magazine is particularly very, very good on is the war on drugs. And I'm curious, do you see this winding down a bit as the public becomes more informed and isn't quite as hysterical about some of these things? I mean, we see legal marijuana in um, Colorado, and Washington. We see semi-legal marijuana for medical purposes in almost half the country now. Do you see this continuing in this path, or do you think the government's going to ramp things up and and try to even clamp down even more?
2: I have been so delighted and excited by the progress made on this issue, and Literally, there were little waves of this in the ideological world before. In the late 80s, early 90s, you'd see things like Time or Newsweek magazine, again, which were big deals then, talking about the idea of drug legalization. I remember back in college, me and my friends felt like, oh, this could actually happen in our lifetime. But, you know, you, you never really believe it. Like, it, it seems possible, but it's happened, and it's been incredibly exciting. And the speed with which it has happened has been incredible. Um, the people, the citizens of the United States, have always been intellectually ahead of the politicians on this. It's actually kind of an incredible sort of political science thing to look at, like how overwhelmingly supportive the population is, the voting population is, particularly of medical marijuana and now even the full marijuana legalization. And still most politicians are afraid of it. And I think we've actually seen a crack in this with Obama even this week, daring to say like, yeah, maybe it's not even as bad as alcohol. And it's like, you know he fought that all along. I mean, you know Barack Obama has believed that since he was, you know, 15. Oh, well, he was in the Chim um, Gang. And he, right, <laughs> but, but he's a politician, and he was always afraid to say it, and politicians are always going to be lagging, mostly. I mean, you'll have the occasional sort of ideological firebrand like a Ron Paul, but for the most part, if you're trying to be a successful politician, you are a follower, you are not a leader, and the fact that these these followers who pretend to be our leaders are now doing things like this is an incredible sign. It's never happening fast enough. Like we're still upset, of course, that like the federal DOJ hasn't completely stopped trying to enforce marijuana laws in uh, the states that have adopted medical marijuana. They should. We wish it happened faster. But I I do not see this not stopping because too many people believe it. It makes too much sense. I mean, certainly they're deeply entrenched interests both in government and in the private sector, that really depend on the war on drugs. And because marijuana is the most widely used drug, the entire war on drugs kind of starts to fail if we're no longer strictly enforcing marijuana laws. Marijuana is overwhelmingly the illegal drug that most Americans use. So if we're not worrying about marijuana anymore and if all we're worrying about is, say, the hard drugs, like we're not ready to legalize heroin or cocaine or meth or whatever, but so few people use those drugs that it will become patently obvious that there is zero sense in having a multi-hundred-a-billion-dollar federal effort just to fight the incredibly tiny number of people doing the so-called harder drugs. So I think even though I don't expect to see actual full legalization of those so-called harder drugs, I think that the government's expensive and life-destroying efforts to actually crush them which of course they will never do will probably go into a band yeah to me it it's been the most encouraging sign that major changes in both people's belief and government practice in a libertarian direction can happen you know in our lifetime it's, it's super encouraging all the way even though as i said it's never as fast as you'd like as a libertarian
1: Uh, Brian, I know you live out here in Los Angeles, as do I out here in California. Do you think that California is going to go all the way pretty soon and and fully make it legal out here? Right now, it's it's essentially legal. It's basically it's decriminalized in in terms of you can have an ounce or less with just a small fine. And obviously, it's very easy to get a medical marijuana card. It's practically legal now as it is. Do you think they're going to actually go all the way?
2: Yeah, I'm sure within the next six years, we will see us do the Colorado and Washington model. It, it's going to have to happen through uh, the initiative process. So it really is a matter of what interest group like gets its ducks in the row and gets its money together and gets stuff on the ballot. Honestly, I'm not up to the minute on knowing what's going on in the background as far as ballot initiatives plan, But I'd be very surprised if the Colorado and Washington approach isn't on the ballot in California within six years.
1: Brian, one more thing I want to touch on before I let you go is an article you wrote a couple of weeks ago. It's entitled Petty Law Enforcement Versus the Poor. And what you discuss here is something that I wasn't even aware of until I read your article. Just to explain to people that aren't familiar with the traffic light system we have out here in L.A., you know, you have the little white man to show you that you can walk, and you have the stopping hand that tells you not to walk. But in between those things, we have a little countdown. It's like a 20-second countdown. And the way it's laid out, and what I always thought was that that countdown is the countdown till you can walk across the street. But uh, apparently that's not really the case, and they are they have actually been ticketing people mostly downtown for jaywalking, but it's it's kind of more it's kind of a bigger picture because these jaywalking tickets, especially if someone's homeless or very poor, they're 197 tickets. Some people have problems paying. Don't always show up to court. Maybe don't even get a letter because you don't know where they live, and it, it kind of sucks people into this system. Can you describe that a little bit and how they're using that in, in a way to kind of pull homeless people off the street? How it leads to civil liberties violations and all that?
2: Sure. The thing you mentioned about the lights is really worth focusing on, especially when you contemplate that at some point in the last decade, the city paid what would have to be enormous amounts of money to change all of the walk, don't walk lights to have this flashing red countdown that you mentioned. Any normal person would assume if the light is flashing red and saying 13, 12, that it's giving you useful information to make a decision, to think, hmm, can I get across in 12 seconds? All right, if I see eight seconds,
1: I'm like, okay, I can make it, no
2: problem. Exactly, but the instant it's flashing red, even if it's giving you a countdown, if you enter that crosswalk, after it started flashing red, you are guilty of a violation that you can be ticketed for in L.A., $197 worth of a ticket for doing that. And I got into writing about this because the New York Times wrote sort of a trend story about it, because L.A.'s downtown has really been gentrifying in the last decade, and now there's lots of sort of bourgeois loft dwellers and shopping and the like. And the New York Times wrote this article about how So many of them, you know, hundreds of them a month are getting these jaywalking tickets, and they're mad. But what the New York Times did not mention, because I I think they assume the readers don't care, is that the first wave of a downtown crackdown on jaywalking happened starting in 2006 as part of something LAPD called the Safe Cities Initiative, which was more or less a way to sort of try to drive the homeless out of downtown. And they were literally giving a 1,000 tickets a month to the sort of 12,000 people who live downtown, many of them homeless, you know, many of them in wheelchairs, many of them pushing all their possessions around in a cart. And as you mentioned, okay, $197 ticket, that might suck for me and you, but we're probably going to be able to pay it. If you're sort of on the margins of life, whether working poor or homeless, there's a very good chance sometimes a 100% chance that you're not going to be able to pay that fine in the sort of 21 days you have to pay it. Suddenly then you have a standing warrant. Of course, the jaywalking things you mentioned also is just a great excuse for the cops to stop people. Like they see you sort of standing in a crosswalk and they have an excuse to interact with you, which gives them an excuse to search you, run warrants. It's sort of a walking Fourth Amendment uh, violation. And the poverty advocates in downtown LA told me dozens of stories of people just clearly being harassed for no good reason under the excuse of jaywalking laws. And while I do not call myself, you know, a bleeding heart libertarian or a left libertarian, I do think it is rhetorically interesting to focus occasionally on the ways in which the state's pettiest actions harm, you know, the least well to do among us. It's sort of a good way into helping people who might not be temperamentally inclined to look at the state, you know, suspiciously, to sort of get to thinking, hey, is this really necessary? You know, and, and this is an enormous part of what these guys do. I mean, there's so many cops dedicated just to messing up poor people's lives over something as nonsensical as jaywalking, and it definitely is rhetorically a good place for libertarians to cast their attention, because even if you don't hate the state in a philosophical sense, I think if you sort of show people exactly how the state tends to function, you can get people to learn to hate it. And that particular article was pretty good with that, people. And these police abuse stories that Reason likes to cover are great for that as well. They, they don't necessarily have a deep philosophical meaning, but they show people, hey, this is what government is really all about. You think in your dream world, government is about doing good things and helping people. No, and when the rubber meets the road, it's generally about messing up people's lives for no particularly good reason.
1: Right, Brian. And as you know, once you kind of get into that system, you are it's pretty much for a lot of these people, especially people that do have trouble paying the fines, finding their court dates and all that stuff. Once you're in, you're pretty much in for life. And now they can take you in for anything. Brian, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. Before I let you go, is there anything you want to plug in terms of your writing? I know we can find all your work over at Reason.com, but feel free to plug anything else you got going on.
2: I'm not working on any book projects now. Reason is where most of my energy is. I have forthcoming stories at various stages about some of recent trends in Second Amendment law in the lower court since the Heller decision. Some stories about attempts to regulate these new smartphone app taxi summoning services like Uber and Lyft. And working on something about the Silk Road that, uh, you know, sort of Bitcoin driven online illegal drug market. They've arrested a libertarian guy claiming that he was The uh, guy operating the Silk Road. Of course, that's still being settled in the court, but it's sort of an interesting example of how people of libertarian ideas allegedly are are changing the world in interesting ways.
1: Brian Doherty, thanks again for coming on the Lions Liberty podcast today. Really appreciate it. And be sure to check out Brian's work at Reason.com. They do a lot of good stuff over there. Thanks a lot, Brian. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. We will be back after a little break.
0: This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplace nation.com your pop culture home. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, Blowback? and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetronpaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said... There can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetronpaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah,
1: it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree
0: to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire
1: And thanks so much for joining me once again here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Brian Doherty as much as I did. He's a really good guy, and I really do recommend you check out his books if you're interested in learning more about the history of the modern libertarian movement, the Ron Paul movement. Maybe you just found out about Lions of Liberty last week. Maybe you don't even know about that. And if you want to help us out, you can even buy his books through our Amazon link. Give us a little kickback over at Lions Liberty at no extra cost to yourself. You can find that link on the right hand of our site. And of course, on this post with our podcast, we will link to all of Brian's works. I also highly recommend Reason Magazine, Reason.com. I don't always agree with everything they say there. Once in a while, I see an article where I say, I don't agree with this at all. But they are very, very good at highlighting a lot of issues and stories that really affect people. Like I said in my interview with Brian Doherty, they're excellent on the war on drugs, something I feel is one of the most important issues for liberty and for libertarians. The entire basis of the war on drugs is based around destroying personal liberty, using violence on people that freely exchange goods, that maybe own a certain kind of plant, that maybe wanted to consume a certain kind of herb or drug and are harming people in no other way. And yet these people have violence inflicted upon them, are tossed into jails, are tossed into the penal system. And it's just wrong. And there are a lot of ways that people get thrown into the penal system. I first had the idea, I've wanted to have Brian on for quite a while, being familiar with his work, but the light bulb went off when I saw, oh, I I should call this guy when I saw one of his articles that we discussed about this LA kind of jaywalking thing here where they are using this traffic light that I've noticed in the past, you know, I've lived here for 10 years. I don't think they were here when I got here. And now there's this countdown system. I always thought it it was like, Hey, great. Now, now I know exactly how much time I have to get across the street. Oh no, no, no. Brian didn't use the word, but in his article he does, it's basically entrapment. I mean, they set up a system that, sure, I guess if you look into it deeply, you might read things and realize that you're not supposed to be crossing the street, but they really do lay it out to make it seem like you should be. And it's just another excuse they use, like you said, to search people, stop people, take homeless people off the streets, put them in jail. For a lot of these people who might have lesser means than some of the rest of us, it's not easy to pay a $197 fine. A lot of these people end up with arrest warrants for it. It's not easy for these people to work their way through the complicated legal system. The penal system for a lot of these people just becomes a way that they are almost permanent slaves to it. Once they get sucked in, it's very, very difficult to get out. And it's very important to highlight these stories, I think, and, and show how states, even massive, not just massive federal governments like the U.S. federal government, but smaller places like Los Angeles, observe similar type things go on in many other cities. We have to be wary of these things. We should point them out. We should fight against them. And, of course, the best way to fight against something, or one of the necessary steps, anyway, is to inform other people that there is even a problem in the first place start a public outcry, get people talking. That's what we do here. That's what we aim to do here on the Lions of Liberty podcast at our website, lionsofliberty.com. So be sure to keep checking us out there where we strive to advance the ideas of Liberty Daily and be sure to catch up on any past episodes of the Lions of Liberty podcast you might have missed. We've had a lot of great shows, a lot of great guests. You can find them all over at lionsofliberty.com slash podcasts for easier listening. You can subscribe over on iTunes or with the awesome Stitcher radio app that I highly recommend. A very cool app you can get for your iPhone, your Droid, I'm sure all sorts of other phones that I don't even know about. <laughs> and be sure to tune in next week. I will have an interview with someone I've really wanted to have on since I started this podcast, a guy by the name of G. Edward Griffin, who wrote the definitive book on the Federal Reserve System, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Very excited to have Mr. Griffin on here next week, so be sure to check back next Thursday. Yes, we're going to have a schedule now. Every Thursday, you're going to have a new podcast from LionsLiberty.com. And we're going to stick to it. I'm going to do my best to stick to it, all right? <laughs> and as long as you guys keep listening, I'll keep putting them out every single week at LionsLiberty.com. So again, be sure to come back and tune in next week where I speak with G. Edward Griffin. And until then, don't forget to live long and live free. <laughs>
2: doctor